This is the Enthusiasts Guild, a place where we talk about wonderful and interesting things with the people who enjoy them. I'm Fletcher C. Finch, and our guest today is Claire Martin. Hi, Claire. Hi. And also joining us is returning guest Tom Pafk. Hey, Tom. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Tom, can you introduce Claire to us a little bit? Yes. I have quite a bit of apprentices that I've, I've had over the years, and usually they're people that just stop by the shop and they're interested in working with me, and the best has been Claire. Oh, that's really <laughs> sweet. That is high she, praise, uh, yeah. Claire, Claire basically was working through her degree at the University of Delaware. Uh, what was your degree in? Was it conservation? It was art conservation and art history. And she she lives here in East Aurora, and she was home for break. Uh, this is about four years ago now. I think it was my junior year of college. Yeah. You wanted to get some hands-on experience, so out of the blue, you just... Stop by. I, I think I emailed. Oh, I, yeah. I yes. emailed the Roycroft General. The uh, Roycrofters at Large Association. Yeah. I just emailed them. I was like, is there anyone who's willing to take me on for a few weeks so that I can get some experience with furniture? Mm-hmm. And yeah. they they got back to me and said you would probably be okay with it. Yep. And and it's it's been great because Claire and I have become really good friends. And whenever she comes home, she stops by and we do some work and have some fun and drink some beer and it's all good. It's been, it's been great. Yeah. Claire, how did you get interested in art history and art conservation? Well, I've always been interested in art and art history. It was my favorite topic in high school. And I can't remember specifically how I learned about art conservation, but it was probably some movie. Oh, you know what it was? It was Ghostbusters 2. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They have that woman who's like working on that painting that's cursed. Mm -hmm. I was like, is that a job? Is that actually a job? And I found out it was and started to try and figure out how you get into it, which was kind of hard because there's barely any undergraduate programs in this country for it. It's mostly a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And people get into it as a second career or they find it later in life. So figuring out how to start out was really hard. But my dad found the University of Delaware program and I visited and liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. I didn't meet anyone in the program when I visited. I couldn't find anyone oh, who wow. was in it because it's really small and I didn't know where to go. So I just kind of did it on a whim and showed up and it worked out pretty well. And where's that taken you so far? The undergraduate program is basically just to get you ready for the master's program. So they fill in all of the requirements you need, which is science, art, and art history. And then they have special specialized courses that are art conservation. They get you into internships, which was really great. So I got to do a lot of internships in different areas because it's it's to help you figure out what you want to specialize in. Because you're not just an art conservator. You specialize in something. So you're either you work on paintings or objects, which is, you know, you specialize within objects or books or paper, photographs, furniture. There's so much you can do, even though it's such a small field. Mm-hmm. So I got to do a lot of internships and my junior year, my advisor asked me to help her just clean some furniture for an exhibition that was happening at the American Swedish Museum in Philadelphia. I went with her. It was just a day-long thing. They needed help getting ready for the exhibition. It's a pretty small museum. And I cleaned a chair that had carving on it. I like this a lot. I, you know, I'm just dusting it. It had this terrible epiphone seat in it that was disintegrating into all of the carving. 
just need to be dusted off. And one of the grad students from the master's program at UD was there helping wax things, get things ready as well. And I was like, I have no idea about furniture. I've never worked with furniture before. I've never thought about it before, but I like this. I probably can't do it. And then, you know, I talked with my advisor about it. She's like, you should, you should go for it. You are a very hands-on person. <laughs> furniture is very hands-on. And I contacted Thomas just to see if I was interested. Mm-hmm. Move forward from there. Oh, that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was she basically has taught me a lot as well. I mean, I'm self-taught with the craft that I do, the making, designing and making furniture. But basically, I didn't do a lot of hand tool work. And in her background, I mean, a lot of these things, you want to be period correct. So you're doing a lot of this stuff by hand. And I learned a lot from you. And it actually got me back into doing stuff by hand and learning about that. So... I mean, the first winter, I didn't know anything, so that was a little different, but I, I got an internship at the Philadelphia Museum of Art my senior year every Friday. I didn't really do conservation work with them. They were really kind to take me on and teach me how to sharpen tools and oh, wow. carve. So it was a lot more learning about the traditional tools, why they were used, what their cut marks looked like on furniture, and kind of how to read furniture more so than just, that's a chest, Okay well, what's the joinery in it and what what tools did they use? That kind of stuff. So that was really interesting. And then I came back to Thomas and was like, why don't you use hand tools? You know? <laughs> because you were excited about yeah, it. Yeah, because I was yeah. super excited. I mean, I remember the first time I went to the PMA and I spent two hours, <laughs> they gave me a chisel and they're like, sharpen this. And I spent two hours just sharpening one you know, one side of it and and going to them being like, is this sharp enough? And they're like, no, sharpen it again. Because it was, they just gotten in all of these carving chisels from Taiwan because one of their fellows was from Taiwan and her boyfriend was a blacksmith in their national heritage. Wow. He worked for the blacksmith that was part of their national heritage program. And they ordered a bunch of these chisels from there and they all needed to be sharpened. They're not like wow. English chisels that come kind of pre-sharpened and with a handle they're just pieces of metal they have the shape on it and you sharpen them they're like sharpen this and I came back and went to a party that night and I remember just gabbing to people being like oh I'm so excited I got to sharpen a chisel and I got to look at this furniture and people like uh-huh yeah that's super <laughs> interesting Claire but it's just it's great when you find something you enjoy you know yeah I was curious what some of those other memorable projects that you've worked on have been There's so many. One that was at the time particularly painful, but I think it taught me a lot. When I was at West Dean, so after I graduated from UD, I did a year in England at West Dean College, which is an art and conservation school. It's very small. There's no more than like 80 students at a time. And one of the projects that I had while I was there was a mid-1800s writing desk. Well, writing box is what it's called. And it had a lot of missing brass inlay. And we ordered brass inlay, but it was just a bit too thick for it. So I had to I had to cut the inlay design, which I had never cut brass before. And it was it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done because I used a a handsaw and I I probably broke over 100 blades. Wow. I, I mean, they're really, really, you know, like a millimeter thick mm-hmm. blades, really tiny. 
and it took me such a long time to get used to it. I ended up continuously had to buy these blades because I kept breaking them. It was much better by the end, but at the beginning, it took me a long time. And then I had to sand the brass to make the thickness the right size. And that was probably one of the most challenging projects I've ever had just because I've I never worked with brass before that. And I had to color it as well because it was new brass and there's mm-hmm. still original brass in it. And it's just sanding it. it took such a long time. So it was a whole new technique. So that one was really difficult. There's a lot of challenges with each project because everything is different. I was thinking that one of the challenges probably particular to the sort of work that you're doing is you need to know how to work with so many different materials and then how to use so many different techniques with those, because it's not like you have one specific thing that you're doing all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to understand. And like you said, understanding what went into making that piece of furniture or that artifact so that you can restore it in the appropriate way. And I've talked about this with peers of mine and and friends that I have who are woodworkers. And it's kind of hard to become a master, I would say, in conservation just because of how much you're doing. It takes a long time. I mean, it does with anything you do, but you can become a pretty good woodworker if you stay consistent and persistent within a few years. You know, you're not going to be a master within a few years, but you can become pretty persistent proficient in it. It's harder to do in conservation because you're not doing the same thing over and over again every day. Mm-hmm. Not to say that Thomas does the same thing over and over again, but he has processes down for every piece that he builds. It's not the same with conservation. It was something that I got used to hearing my professors say a lot when you'd ask them a question, they'd be like, it depends. Mm-hmm. It depends. You, you never know with a piece that you're working with, even if you think that you know, and then you have to take it apart and you're like, oh my God, some who did this to this piece? Because you end up finding weird fixes and old conservation or a material you've never worked with before. It's exciting. It can be frustrating, but it's a lot of fun. If you're presented with a new challenge, how much time are you spending on research versus the hands-on process? Oof. It depends. (laughs) Um, Conservators don't like to admit this. And something that you are taught is you have to treat every object or piece you work with the same. I don't find that to be true in practice. Time-wise, ethically, all of those things, they tend to be kind of different. I mean, museum work is pretty different from private work Mm -hmm. because museum pieces aren't being sat on. People aren't using them. And they have a stable environment. You know that they're going to be treated well versus I might get a chair that is beautiful piece from the 1820s with a woven seat that's original. But if it's torn, you can't fix that to be safe to sit on. And you know someone's going to stand on it because people just are brutal with their furniture. So you've got to approach it knowing What is the background for this piece? Yeah, but where is it going? Who's using it? Mm -hmm. Thomas has to think about this as well. Like you can't send out a chair to someone that's not safe to sit on. Even if you try to keep the original materials in place, things like that. Like I might have to use epoxy, which I don't Mm -hmm. like to use. But if I need to fix a rail or a piece of wood that is going to have a lot of weight borne on it, You might have to replace it or put epoxy. It's just, it's a lot of thought to go into it. I'm still kind of building up that way of thinking. I rely on my my boss a lot to kind of double check 
I think this is how I should do this. You might say that's fine, or this is how this is going to be used, or we can probably salvage this. It's it, it's a lot of thinking. Art museums and history museums often, when they're restoring something, it's important to them not only that it's historically accurate, but that something can be undone. Yeah. Reversibility is something that's kind of hammered into us. The problem is there's no true reversibility. You can try and make something as reversible as possible, but the moment a conservator touches a piece, it's changed. And that's an unfortunate reality. It's amazing when you find or you're given a piece of furniture and nobody's touched it. Oh, this is amazing. It still has its original finish. It still has all of the original joinery, bearing that it's not falling apart completely. It can tell you a lot. And conservation is still a pretty young profession. It was really only established in the 60s. So there's a lot of techniques conservators did in the 60s, 70s, up to now that we're finding it's not <laughs> not the best technique to do anymore. So you've got to be kind to, to conservators. You find their work and you're like, why would someone ever do this to it? But it was best practice at the time. I'd like Claire to expound upon her experience at West Dean. You're going to school in a castle in the country. It's an estate. Let's be clear. <laughs> it's not that old. I remember getting on the plane to go to England and just being like, oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? I'm I'm not this person. I'm not ready for this. And then I got there and you realize that nobody is kind of ready for Westine when they arrive. It's really thrilling. The first few days I met all my peers, Shane and Harry, all the other people in the wood workshop, which is not just conservation. There's also makers in it, which is a really amazing experience. And, you know, people from other departments, books, medals. And everybody's just so interested in what they're doing and so nerdy about it. And suddenly you don't <laughs> feel like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. And I just remember having this conversation with my friend Shane, who ended up being the guy right across from me. We shared basically a bench talking about these Islamic screens and doors that he was really interested in. Me knowing exactly what he was talking about, being like, oh, I saw those in Toronto. That's so interesting. Pulling up photos. And it's just, it's so nice when you find your people mm -hmm. who don't look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> so that was amazing. And then our first project there as uh, graduate conservation students in the furniture department was to get a piece of wood and to plane it into a cone that was smaller at one end than the other. And it had to roll down a sloped surface without making any noise. So that was a lot of whispering to each other, like, do you know what you're doing? Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Do you know what you're doing? <laughs> and hearing the sound of wood rolling down, like rolling across a bench surface for like a week. Until we we finally got it to a point where we're like, okay, show it to the show it to Norbert, our professor. I was like, okay, now hit it with a sledgehammer. <laughs> so we <laughs> so we we wrapped it in saran wrap and then took it outside and broke it in half with a sledgehammer. So it's it did, wasn't a clean break; it splintered, and then we put it back together. <laughs> So the whole point of it was, one, precision with tools, and then figuring out how to put this piece of wood back together. I'll say that mine was a little bit hollow in the middle by the end of it, because you get all these splinters, and it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly where this goes, and it's just getting in the way. It's not 
fitting together. It was a lot of wide-eyed looks across the bench at each other, but it was it was an amazing experience. Thankfully, the third part of the project Norbert didn't require anymore, which was to plane it square again and then cut it up and make a chopping block out of oh, it. Wow. Basically, I think wow. Shane did that. And by the time you get to the actual chopping block, it's like a two by two inch square. <laughs> There's not a lot of wood left. Yeah, that was our first project. Something with a lot of crafts and also conservation is you have to learn your flaws pretty quickly. I'm stubborn, which can be useful, but not always. And I can also <laughs> be impatient, which is never useful in conservation. So it's, it's a constant battle to make myself step back and be like, don't get frustrated calm down, slow down, think about it. It's good and bad. It means I'm constantly confronting myself about things, which is great, but also a little demeaning at times. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Westing was amazing. I mean, there were times where I was like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I'm obviously not skilled in this, but then you you just keep working at it and then you, you get better and it's an uphill battle. But there were so many amazing, talented people there that I felt like I could always ask for help if I needed to. And I learned a lot, which was great. Do you feel that that rounded out your education? I mean, you spent four years at, at University of Delaware. And then mm -hmm. do you feel that that rounded out and made you ready for the working world? That's hard to say. I mean, at UD, I learned the ethics, the basic kind of workings and museum expectations of conservation. I didn't get a lot of furniture training there. At Westine, I learned a lot about traditional woodwork, furniture making, also the history of furniture, because I have a degree in art history, but they don't, they don't really focus on the trends within furniture. It's something you have to seek out yourself, mostly. So I learned a lot. And there was things that they taught that at the time I was like, why do I need to know this? And now, now that I'm actually working, there's skills that are really useful. And I've been able to bring some things to the table at my job in Virginia that I learned on like my first day at Westine that have been so useful, like how to how to clean brass without using an abrasive, different techniques within that that were new processes that my boss hadn't known about. So that was really great. Two of your classmates have a podcast as well? Yes, they do. It's called This Crafted World, and they are discussing what they're doing and their thoughts about the, what they're doing and, and why they do things the way they do. It's very comforting to me because it's like listening into their conversations that they had at Westine, which was always really great because Harry is a woodworker in Bristol, and Shane, he's from the U.S. originally, but he's lived in Australia for over a decade now and they're just really brilliant people and I always love listening to them. It's hard when you move away from an environment like Westine where you're just constantly being able to talk and discuss things that you're thinking about and what you're doing in the workshop to being in rural Virginia and my boss and coworker are great but it's not the same as uh, I think a learning environment. Yeah so they're wonderful. <laughs> Go give it a listen. Yeah. <laughs> Westing was great because we we took a trip to Vienna and my uh, professor uh, is German, so he speaks German. 
So he was able to just design this whole amazing trip for us and translate for us. So we went to the, uh, what was it? The Royal Furniture Depot Oh, mm-hmm, in Vienna. And that was just, I mean, nobody spoke English, so nobody had to translate everything. But it was, they have a whole workshop just for French polishing and a whole workshop just for upholstery and a whole workshop just for gilding. And it's just very traditional crafts that you don't really see much anymore. So that was that was great. Is there a specific sort of project that you haven't had the opportunity to do yet that you'd love to tackle? There is so much. I want to probably I want to work on more carved pieces. I work on mostly southern furniture because I'm in the south. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we see. I like decorative surfaces, but it's not something that I have a lot of experience with. So painted surfaces because I was originally interested in paintings conservation and I realized it's not quite for me but there's certain aspects of it that I really enjoy maybe not all the time Mm -hmm. but every once in a while it's it's really cool to be able to work in that area I like gilding I just finished not a conservation project it was more restoration but I just finished gilding a settee on it was a side project for me And I really enjoy that. I haven't gotten a lot of experience doing water gilding. I've mostly done oil. So that's something I'd like to work in more. There's a lot you can do. So it's it's hard to pull it off the top of my head. But yeah, those those are kind of areas I'd like to look more into. And what's your day-to-day work look like? It depends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I like this as a refrain. It depends. Yeah, it depends. (laughs) So right now at the workshop, I have a cabinet and bookcase. And one has we've we've worked on the structural issues which it had a, a lot of issues just bringing joints back together that separated and chipping out glue we're not quite sure what it was but it was a modern glue that just didn't want to dissolve and most solvents um so it was a lot of physical chipping to get that out of of joints and i think we're going to be doing a lot of finish work on it now to to get off paint flex, people will paint walls and they won't really drag their big pieces away from the wall. So they'll end up with bits of paint on them mm-hmm. and water stains and, you know, all the wear and tear that happens to furniture naturally has to be refreshed. I know I'm working on hardware that the brass hardware that needs to be cleaned. So I'll probably be doing putting like a chelating agent on it, which will pull off a lot of the the tarnish on it without having to actually physically rub away that tarnish and also take some of the metal with it. Mm-hmm. I finished a piece that was I was actually really happy with from the National w- Women's Democratic Club in DC and it was a sideboard that had these really cool hairy paw claws on them where the toenails had just been bashed off. You could tell someone had like gone at it with a vacuum cleaner, so I got to Put on, you know, new wood and recarve those and then gild them and then distress that new gilding, which is a whole really cool process I enjoyed a lot. What's your official job title? I am an intern. An intern, <laughs> okay. Officially, I'm an intern. I've been working with my boss for over a year now. Yeah. In like the conservation world, I'm officially a pre-programmed student. I'm not actually a conservator okay. technically. 
until I get my master's degree. Can you tell us more about the background of who you work for now? Did he come from museums or anything along those lines? Yeah. So my boss is F. Kerry Hallett. He used to be the head of conservation at Colonial Williamsburg, and he has his own company, private company now. He gets thrown a lot of really cool jobs. Obviously, because he worked at Colonial Williamsburg for such a long time, he's known very well in the Virginia area, especially museums come to him for projects that they can't do in-house. It's really common for museums not to have an in-house furniture conservator. I mean, having an in-house conservator in general, you've got to be a pretty big museum. And a lot of times, I know in England, in the U.S., it's kind of moving this way as well. Conservators that work in-house in museums, they tend to do a lot of preventive work. So it's protecting your collection as a whole, taking care of the environment, making sure that Certain rooms that, you know, if they have fluctuating relative humidity, light levels are under control and and what objects can be put where, pest control, things like that. And then bench work tends to be outsourced Mm -hmm. because, you know, having a full-time conservator is pretty expensive for a small historic museum, things like that. So he gets a lot of jobs coming from that aspect. We have a job from Monticello right now. So that's really cool. I mean, I'm not yeah. working on it personally. And if I do get to help, it's going to be very a very supervised thing. But it's it's always really cool to see what comes in. I was at Colonial Williamsburg a couple summers ago and stepped into one of the homes that they have there. And I mentioned to the living historian who mm-hmm. was there how nice it was to be in the air conditioning. And he said, oh, that's not for me. That's for the furniture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, objects are very finicky. And as a rule, objects should be treated the same way humans would be ideally, <laughs> like our ideal conditions. Furniture can't be have like really dry levels. So low RH, they'll start cracking. They can't have really high RH because they'll start molding. So you can imagine in the South, you can't ha- put a historic object in a space that doesn't have AC, it'll start to mold, you know, insects will start to eat it. And then up north, where we get really, really dry winters, you can't be in a space that doesn't have like a humidifier in it. Right. So that's something that like an in-house conservator or the head of conservation, there's preventive uh, conservators as well, which is, I don't know if that's a title that's used regularly in Europe, but in the U.S. it's it's something that's used. There's a program for it specifically at Winchester. They think about that a lot, like how much is the RH, the relative humidity fluctuating, because that's also really bad. So mm-hmm. if you have objects in, let's say, a college space, college museum, well, it closes for holidays. Who is watching the humidity in that space during that time? If you have dehumidifiers, who's going to change those out during that time? That's things that people have to think about. It's it's something that we learned a lot about in undergrad that we were taught about because preventive conservation is really the most cost-effective form of sense. conservation. It means you don't have to do expensive like hands-on treatments if you're taking care of it within the environment. You had mentioned that you've been doing a lot of work lately with Southern furniture. What are some of the characteristics of that? Oh, it's hard to describe. So, I mean, there's always going to be aspects of things that are made in a specific area that 
are common to that area because all the artisans are looking at each other. So, for example, like a cabriole leg, which is a ball and claw foot with like a, a carving around the knee. Mm-hmm. It's different between cities oh, okay. in the U.S. So Philly, New York, Richmond, Boston, they have different styles. So you can, if you know enough, which I'm starting to learn, um, you can tell kind of what city or area that leg was carved in. And that's because all the artisans were looking at each other. Mm-hmm. Something like a, like a pie safe is a really Southern piece of furniture. And it's got that, that tin punch work in oh. a cabinet. And something, Carrie really loves them. <laughs> so we have quite a few corner cupboards, things like that. They're more Southern looking furniture. Things like Roycroft pieces. That's more common to, you know, the North East Aurora. That makes sense. Asheville has you know, it's kind of like a, a random center for that in the South, but it's not common. Yeah. So you've, you've got pockets of things that you can tell where they were made just because of certain details and how they were, they were crafted. Now, when you were in the UK, did you encounter any of the arts and crafts work that had been done over there? Yeah. You, you see, I mean, people love that stuff. The wallpaper, those patterns are everywhere. Mm-hmm. The influence is just everywhere. Well, that that was the birthplace. Of yeah, so, so so they love so it. So obviously, it's something that that the Americans basically, you know, co opted mm-hmm. and you know tried to make it better or whatever they whatever the term is. Yeah, I mean, the arts and crafts movement started in the 1850s in the UK. So I had just been seeing something since you were mentioning the the wallpaper about how. The quarters in uh, Royal Navy ships and submarines had William Morris wallpaper. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) That that seems kind of counterintuitive, though. Why would you put wallpaper in a ship? I mean, it's 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 crazy if you see the pictures, too, because you're in this fairly utilitarian space. And here is this definitely decorative touch. There's just there's some things that you just people don't think about when they do them that someone's got to conserve that. Now, I have this reoccurring nightmare. That who's going to have to start conserving waterbeds? And is it going to be me? Oh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I have nightmares about that stuff. <laughs> well, and I know that's a, a challenge for museum conservators that plastics and rubbers break down. Over time. Yeah, people don't think about it. Early plastics, that stuff breaks down like they're there. Oh, I can't remember what artist did this, but there's this chair that was it was a foot or a hand. I remember reading an article and it exploded because it was just all plastic and that mm-hmm. it's it's like a exothermic reaction was happening and it just went off. I mean, that's the same with film, old film. Yeah. It's highly explosive. You can't keep it in just normal temp, like a normal temperature room. You have to keep it in a freezer. And that's a problem for a lot of museums is that they can't afford to buy freezers to, to hold their film. And museums have caught on fire because of it. Right. We had a conversation today, you and I, Claire, you and I, Mm -hmm. about epoxy and epoxy tables. And Uh. it's just like, really? If I see another epoxy river table, I'm going to choke the person that made it because they're just everywhere. But we had this conversation about epoxy hasn't been around that long. What is this stuff going to look like in 10 or 20 years? Mm Bit of a snob about it. Yeah, I mean, it's just those river tables are beautiful right now. They're like gorgeous. But a lot of people are using West System epoxy, which is made for boats. That's originally what it was. I mean, we use it in conservation as 
a consolidation, which is like to hold something that's been eaten away by worms, things like that. And we'll fill it with a strengthening material. But to use it as a main ingredient in a piece of furniture, and you know, like within a decade, it's going to yellow and it's going to shift and it's not going to be perfectly level anymore. And I mean, it might be really interesting for someone to look at that, but I just, um, I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen any of the, the photographs or footage that have come out from the shipwrecks in the Black Sea that they have recently been been located and some of them are actually roman era ships oh that's amazing and because they're because they've sunk to a level that's below where there's oxygen in the water perfectly the woodwork is all perfectly preserved and they have no intention of moving them at all because they say there's nothing we can do that would preserve these better Mm -hmm. than these are now now we just need to make sure that nobody messes with them yeah i mean shipwrecks are really interesting i think it's the Mary Rose, I believe, yes. is I visited that in England oh and the amount of work that goes into well, desalinating and slowly drying that kind of woodwork at years, decades. And they're putting what's called um, they call it peg. I think it's like a polyethylene glycol. Yeah. And people are questioning it now but mm-hmm. you know these like the vassar they've been dunked in it so what are you going to do if we find out that actually it's not a sustainable material i haven't done enough reading to really debate it but it's it's interesting i know that that's been a challenge with some of the viking longships that were used in burials that they found too where the wood has no structural integrity but mm-hmm. because of the qualities of the wood and and the way that the minerals have deposited they can tell where everything was so they're trying to figure out how best to preserve yeah. the shape of what was there so much research and like it's just it's way above my pay grade i think it's really interesting but um the idea of waterlogged working with waterlogged wood is a little bit terrifying to me i can see that yeah i mean it's it's so interesting i the, visiting the mary rose this what they've done and the the objects that they found on that ship is just historically amazing. Well, because that was such a I'm trying to, to think it, it was almost like a showpiece of a ship mm-hmm. and it sank so quickly. Yeah. While it was so new. I mean, just like the yeah. Vassar, like that's mm-hmm. I mean, we love it. It's amazing to just get this perfectly preserved piece of history for them. It was financially horrifying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With your enthusiasm for conservation and, and preservation. How have you shared this with other people or have you shared this? with I, other people? I have. Um, well, you know, it's kind of hard to get me to shut up about it, to be honest. Having friends in, in conservation is really nice because I, I can ask questions when I'm unsure about things and get other people's opinion. The job that I took on recently, the sete that I gilded, I've done oil gilding in the past, but it's always good to have a reference on hand. So I was able to ask friends, you know, what, what do you use when you gild? What's the reference you have? Which is really helpful. With my family, it's kind of just me talking to them and they slowly pick up on things. <laughs> with my other friends, it's like, how are you doing? What's going on with life? Well, I, I work, so you're going to hear about my work. Mm-hmm. It's great to share what you enjoy with other people and to be like, what you do is really weird. So I'll talk about it a little bit more, yeah. you know. Why is it that you enjoy it so much? It's such a hands-on thing. I'm not good at writing. I'm not good at math. I'm really good at picking glue for eight hours if I need to do that or color matching something for 
for a couple of days. It's it can be frustrating, but it's really satisfying when you like there's this bare patch on a, a side of a cabinet and it's just so glaringly obvious. And then a few days later, you can't see it anymore. And that's really exciting to me. I think this is a continuous thing in conservation, but I'm still in a very heavy learning phase of my career. And I love learning. So it's it's just really satisfying to go home and maybe at the end of the week, you learn something new. And knowing that you keep getting to learn something. I mean, my, my boss is so great at just being really patient and so willing to answer any questions that I have. And I always have a lot. Yeah, I, I just really enjoy it. What would be your ultimate job? If you could have any job in your industry, in this country or uh, any other country, what would be the best job? I have been asked this question so many times that I don't even really know the answer anymore. I used to think it was to be a conservator in a museum. And I still think partially that is something that I want to do. Unfortunately, I now know that there's a lot of bureaucracy involved with being a conservator in a museum. And sometimes you don't get to do as much bench work as you would like. Like the highest paying job is to be the head of a department, conservation department, or the head of furniture in a big museum. But typically when you take those jobs on, you don't get to do as much bench work as you like. Like you can set aside really interesting projects, but it's not really your day-to-day prerogative anymore. And I love doing bench work a lot. I really enjoy it. So I guess... I think I'm leaning more towards private conservation in the long run because I I do enjoy seeing a variety of things come into the workshop. I think it's really cool to be able to work on so much. But to be honest, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I haven't gotten my grad degree. I think it might change as I go through that program and figure it out. I'm not really holding anything down yet to be like, this is where I want to end up. I know it's not in a big city. That's all I know right now Mm -hmm. is I don't want to end up in a big city. I think one of the themes that we've noticed all along is that you basically are doing something different every day. Yeah. And and that's, that's like the ultimate goal. You're never going to get bored because you're doing, you're working on something different, something new, something exciting every single day. Variety is the spice of life. There you go. Something that's really nice about conservation is that you're rarely working on something entirely by yourself. I really like the teamwork aspect of it. I mean, I work with uh, two other people most of the time, so it's a very small team. But it is it is nice to have that collaborative aspect to things. And once you finish a project, be like, oh, God, thank God that's done. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, by the time you finish it, you're like, oh, no, I can't look at this anymore. And then you have something else to work on. And it's just, I just feel like a lot of office jobs or, you know, corporate jobs, you're filling out the same paperwork. You have the same kind of objectives every year. I, I, it's not how my brain works. I, I wouldn't be very productive in that kind of setting. Also, I get to stand and move around and crouch in weird positions. It's just better for me as a person. And from what you were saying earlier, it sounds like the collaboration sometimes goes beyond the immediate environment where mm-hmm. if you have a question or a project and there's somebody else who's out there who's done similar work, who you know, you could probably call them up and just say, Hey, how how would you approach this? What's your idea on this? Yeah, I have found conservators to be some of the most welcoming, happy to share, ready to help people that I've ever met. I've spoken to older conservators who are like, you know, sometimes you end up at a job where 
you're the only furniture conservator in the museum. And it's important to have a network of people that you can reach out to and double check your work with and get a second opinion on because you shouldn't work in a bubble. And if you're doing something and you're not sure about it, ask or don't do it. You should Mm -hmm. never take on a project that you're not confident that you're able to do well because you're working with people's cultural heritage and it's it's important and you shouldn't mess it up because you weren't sure. Were there any things that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? There's so many aspects of conservation. I mean, conservation outreach is not something that I've gotten to do all that much of. I got to do a little bit of it as an undergrad. So what would that be? Because conservation is a new kind of newer career and it's not as cemented in museums as maybe like a curatorial position is. We try to do outreach. Museums try to do outreach to talk about it so that people know what it is and realize how important it is. If you want your heritage to survive, we need conservators to take care of it. So one thing that Winchester does, which I think I really enjoyed being able to help with this, was Terrific Tuesdays, where they have school children come in during the summer and they do these programs where you pick like a specialty in conservation each week and you make little games or projects for the kids to do based on that. Color theory was one we did once, teaching kids about different colors, how to mix, things like that. And that's something that I had to take a whole course on color theory as an undergraduate, and I loved it. It's been so useful to me as a conservative, but I would have loved to know about it when I was a kid. It also makes museums feel more welcoming. It's not just conservation outreach, it's museum outreach so that the people who live near these museums and people who, who don't generally go into museums feel more comfortable being in them. Well, Claire. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Tom, thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. It was really great to like get to talk about what I'm passionate about. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Enthusiasts Guild. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Our music this episode is Akahera by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons license. 